This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Monday, July 3rd, 2023. I'm Caleb Brown. What takes mere words outside the realm of constitutionally protected speech? The Supreme Court has recognized a true threat exception, but in the case of Counterman v. Colorado, the court seemed reluctant to expand that exception and wrestled over what standard should apply in determining what constitutes a true threat. Cato's Jay Schweiker discusses the case. Jay, the court has handled questions that are similar to this fairly recently, that is, true threats and what what kinds of threats and what kinds of language that really seem like threats the First Amendment does not, in fact, protect. So if you don't mind, can you give us a sense of what the state of play was before this case? Sure. I mean, everyone agrees that so-called true threats are outside of the scope of First Amendment protection. That that principle itself has never really been in dispute. Probably the most significant recent decision from the court is Virginia versus Black, which was the case involving Virginia's cross-burning statute. Virginia had basically passed a law saying it is illegal to burn a cross with the intent to intimidate someone. And oh, by the way, burning a cross itself will be prima facie evidence of intent to intimidate. And so what the court said in holding that statute unconstitutional under the First Amendment is, yes, you could prohibit burning a cross with the intent to intimidate because that would be a true threat. But it's the statute presuming that anyone burning a cross is necessarily intending to intimidate someone as opposed to simply making an ideological statement. And so on that basis, they held that statute unconstitutional. So the court focused on this question of intent pretty heavily because that was the specific issue with that statute in Virginia versus Black. But it left open this question that the court had not squarely decided, which is to prohibit something as a true threat. Does that necessarily require proving that the speaker intended to threaten someone? Or is it sufficient to show just that their speech was objectively threatening? regardless of what their actual intent was. And so that question, is there a mental state requirement behind the true threats doctrine? And if so, what is it? That's the question in Counterman. So with that as the background, what did the court say in Counterman? What was surprising or notable about this opinion? Sure. So in Counterman, what you had was an individual, Billy Counterman, who had sent a series of admittedly abrasive and it times disturbing Facebook messages to a local musician. Some of these were very benign or just odd. Some of them envisioned harm befalling her. He said things like, fuck off permanently or staying inside is going to get you killed or something. Admittedly, kind of upsetting messages. And he was prosecuted under a Colorado anti-stalking statute. But even though that statute was anti-stalking, it, it really he was prosecuted only for these messages. And at trial, the court in Col- the Colorado court applied a so-called objective standard, meaning it doesn't matter what was in your head. It doesn't matter that you didn't intend these as threats. The mere fact that someone could perceive them as threatening is enough for the criminal prosecution to go forward. And he was convicted and sentenced to four and a half years in prison. So the Supreme Court, in considering his, his conviction, is, was basically asking, is that enough? Do you ha- is, is an objective standard enough? And the court in a 7-2 reversed the conviction saying there is a mental state element to true threats. In other words, 
it is not enough to show just that an, a reasonable person might find the statement threatening. However, where even the majority split in the decision, the majority opinion between Justice Kagan and the concurrence by Justice Sotomayor, they split on what that mental state requirement was. So Justice Kagan, her, her opinion says that a recklessness standard is enough. In other words, that a defendant, if a defendant consciously disregards a substantial risk that their communications would be viewed as threatening violence, that is enough to prosecute them for making a true threat. Whereas Sotomayor's concurrence basically said, we don't need to reach that question, but if we do, we should apply an intent standard. So even though the majority reversed Counterman's conviction and established a subjective requirement for true threats, it, was a, it fell a little bit short of how speech protective it could be because it's still technically possible to prosecute someone for a true threat, even if they didn't intend to make a threat. Justice Sotomayor then is applying a higher standard to future prosecutions, would apply a higher standard to future prosecutions about what constitutes a threat. That's right. And that, and that position is the position that we urged in our amicus brief and that we've urged consistently you know, over the years, be, in part because that's consistent with our other exceptions to the First Amendment when it comes to something like incitement, like when you can prohibit people for inciting act, unlawful action. The court has been very clear that you can only do that when, with, with respect to speech that is intended to and likely to cause imminent unlawful action. So we put a very high bar on incitement prosecutions. And, and the reason that we thought that that made sense here is that, you know, admittedly, and probably no one is going to say that this, these kinds of harassing messages on Facebook are like valuable speech, right? No one's really going to bat to defend the speech in this case. But in a world where our political discourse is increasingly online and there's a lot of heated online speech, if you make it easy, you know, or without robust protections for for speakers, there's the risk that heated speech online will be mistaken for threats. I mean, you ima imagine, you know, saying, you know, fuck off permanently to a politician that you don't like. Right. I mean, all, a lot of people say the, say that kind of thing all the time. But the idea that that could be criminally prosecuted is pretty disturbing, especially since it would be people like politicians, people with a lot more political clout, who would be applying pressure and, you know, chilling speech of their critics. So I, I think that, you know, we'll kind of have to see what this looks like in practice, because the majority's standard is fairly speech protective, because recklessness in the way the court is defining it isn't just being negligent. It's that you knew about a risk and you consciously disregarded it. So I'm reasonably hopeful that that will provide sufficient protection against chilling online speech. But certainly, you know, Sotomayor's standard, which Justice Gorsuch joined, I think would be the better standard. And Justice Thomas and Justice Barrett, or just, I should say Justice Barrett wrote separately. Justice Thomas also wrote separ separately, but he joined her dissent. What did she say? So Justice Barrett dissented to say an objective standard should should just be enough. You shouldn't need any other mens rea element because the thing the reason that we prohibit true threats is because of the fear that it puts in people, which could exist whether or not the speaker has a mental state intending to threaten someone. And she, you know, makes some arguments about like historically speaking, those kinds of threats were punishable. And it's, I mean, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a reasonable opinion where, where I, you know, what I think is the, the problem with it is that 
there is such a massive range for disagreement and misunderstanding when it comes to how to like whether what a reasonable person would perceive as threatening. I mean, that's very that's pretty vague and open ended. And again, like I said, in a world increasingly dominated by very heated online speech, you know, leaving up to people basically to determine, well, I feel threatened by this, I think risks chilling a lot of very protected speech. Um, Justice Thomas also wrote, he joined Justice Barrett's dissent saying an objective standard should be enough. He also wrote separately to say, well, you know, the court relies on New York Times versus Sullivan and some of its analysis, but that decision was ridiculous and totally policy oriented and we should reconsider it. But he was, he was alone on that particular point. So going forward, what is the upside of this? So it's obviously, you know, a lot of, like a lot of cases, this is just a terrible situation where somebody who has seems clearly to have been wronged in some way, nonetheless, doesn't get the call from the court. Well, I think well, one thing that's worth keeping in mind, right, is that nothing about the court's decision here prohibits other alternatives to harassing speech online. Uh, I mean, obviously, people always have the ability you know, to block speakers, but also, you know, this kind of speech certainly can still serve as the basis for getting restraining orders and violation of restraining orders, of course, can be grounds for criminal prosecution. Of course, nothing here reflects prohibitions on stalking in terms of actually following someone. So, you, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I mean, I'm certainly very sympathetic to people who are, you know, the victims of, you know, harassing or threatening speech online. It's, it's a serious problem. There are alternatives short of criminal prosecution for messages alone that someone doesn't intend to threaten. But I think the upside going forward is that, you know, we now know you know, lower courts are going to be clear on what the right standard is to apply with respect to true threats prosecutions and that it's a recklessness standard. So that would require people showing that someone consciously disregarded a risk that their speech would be perceived as threatening. You know, I think that it's, it's a little bit of an open question about what, you know, to what extent even that allows for some chilling of protected speech. You know, realistically, most of the time you're not going to see criminal prosecutions for like a few heated Twitter messages. But of course, that's kind of the point is that, you know, you you don't want these cases to turn on whether the particular recipient of that speech has enough political clout to bring about a criminal prosecution. So like I said, I'm reasonably optimistic about what that's going to look like in practice. But, you know, there's still a little bit of an open question about whether the majority standard is going to be protective enough. Jay Schweikert is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. Subscribe to and rate the Cato Daily Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.